Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Life and death are in the hand of the tongue, and those who love it will eat the fruit of it. Proverbs 18.21 Thoughtless words are as stabbings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 12.18 The book of Proverbs is full of insights regarding the importance of our words. In fact, the whole Bible is. Perhaps the most powerful statement about the consequences of the tongue come from the Lord Jesus himself. Matthew 12, 36 to 37, I say to you that every useless word which men speak, they will give and account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We've all experienced the power, good or bad, of words, whether our own or whether we were on the receiving end. God takes our words very seriously. They have incredible consequences. Moreover, they themselves are the consequence of our own heart. In fact, in that same text from earlier, Matthew 12 and verse 34, we read, Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Malachi 3, 13 to 18, our text for this episode, contains a powerful message about the reminder of words. In fact, the idea of words frames the entire section. First, we have those who use their words negatively in verses 13 to 15. And then we have those who use their words positively in 16a. And in response to these, God has his own words to say, eternal words, which are written in a book, which is the idea of 16b to 18. So keep that outline in mind as I read through our text, starting in verse 13. Your words have overpowered me, says Yahweh. And you say, how have we spoken, maybe spoken among ourselves, against you? You say, it is nothing to serve God, and what profit is there that we have kept his obligations and that we walk in mourning before Yahweh Sebaoth? And now we call the insolent blessed. Surely those who do wickedness are built. Surely they test God and they get away. Then those who feared Yahweh spoke with one another, a man with his neighbor. And Yahweh gave attention, and he heard, and it was written in a book of remembrance before him for or of the ones who feared Yahweh and thought on his name. And they will be mine, says Yahweh Sabaoth, on the day which I make property and have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. And you will turn and you will see, or you will again see between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The first section describes those who use their words negatively. And my translation has, your words have overpowered me. The ESV has, your words have been hard against me. The New American Standard has, your words have been arrogant against me. The NRSV, you have spoken harsh words. And the good old King James has, your words have been stout against me. The word where these translations differ is the Hebrew chazek, which means something like, hard or overpower. And we then have this preposition against. Now, from the other times when this verb pairs up with this preposition, we have a situation when someone is prevailing or imposing on someone. A few examples. 
In 2 Chronicles 27.5, Jotham prevails against the Ammonites, that is, he overcame them. In Genesis 47.20, the famine is severe against the Egyptians, that is, it overpowered them. In fact, the closest parallel is in 1 Chronicles 21.4, since it also has the word words in it. There, Joab is arguing with David about whether or not a census should be taken of the people. And we read that David's words prevailed against Joab. Now, for those of you who have been carefully following along to this series, you may have noticed that I often approvingly quote Ray Clendenin, who's an excellent scholar and has spent a lot of his time in Malachi. But I have to disagree with him here when he says that there's no equivalent expression in the Hebrew to what we find in Malachi. It seems like we do. First Chronicles 21.4 is extremely similar, and the ones about Jotham and David are sufficiently similar too. The difficulty, however, uh, comes when we think about this happening between God and the people. In the previous illustrations, Joab lost the argument. The Egyptians lost the fight, so to speak, with the famine. The Ammonites lost to Jotham. They were overpowered. The other person prevailed. Here in Malachi 3.13, we find that Israel's words have prevailed against God. Now, in a literal sense, of course, this is impossible. But Malachi just delights to use this approach, and we see him do it several times. In fact, 2.17 is kind of a parallel, which reads, You have wearied Yahweh with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? And then Malachi explains, Obviously, God cannot literally be wearied, nor can he be overcome. Malachi talks like this because it's a rhetorical move to emphasize how bad the words actually were. So what was it then that is portrayed as so bad as overpowering God? It is the words which the people spoke. Now, the stem here for spoke in Hebrew is not the normal one associated with this word, but is in a stem that often has the reflexive idea. And that seems like the idea here. And my translation kind of got at that by adding, spoke among yourselves. Now, as support, verse 16 uses the same word and the same stem and clearly has the reflexive idea. And we know this because it adds the expression, a man to his neighbor. So the people were grumbling and complaining among themselves, and their complaint was twofold. First, they were upset about their own suffering, like God hadn't kept his own end of the bargain. Recall from the previous section in Malachi, that God has said that if the people did repent, there would be prosperity, the windows of heaven would be open, and so on. From these people's perspective, they did what they were supposed to do. They were obedient, but God wasn't coming through. And in fact, they went so far as to walk in mourning. Now, from 2.13, we find that Malachi indicted the people for covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he doesn't accept their offering. We aren't sure what this exactly looked like, but perhaps they had, like we read in Ezra, a a time of national repentance. From their perspective, they had gone through all the necessary steps, but still, God wasn't accepting their sacrifices. The priest's blessing was hollow, and they continued to languish there. And, to make matters worse, they also saw that the insolent were blessed, and people tested God and got away with it. Now, this mention of testing God links us back to the previous text in which God challenges the people to test him. In contrast to that invited testing, here we have another kind, 
the bad kind, in which people were testing the limits of how much disobedience they could get away with before God noticed. And they were finding, from the way they saw it, that God would allow quite a bit. But Malachi sees through this whole facade, and his basic response is, go cry me a river. Your repentance is half-hearted. You neglect the law of sacrifices in the temple. You're unfaithful in your marital commitments. You have failed to tithe your resources. Of course, God isn't going to accept you. The lament, woe is us, God has forsaken us, is a burden to God too heavy for the Almighty to bear. There's another group, however, who uses their words in a different way. They speak to one another, fearing the Lord and thinking about his name or esteeming his name. And this feeds into one of the major themes in Malachi on the importance of theology. The problem in the first major section on the priesthood is that people had lost sight of how great God really was, their father and master. The problem in the second section was that they also lost sight of who God was. Have we not all one father? Why are we faithless? And so on. In contrast, these people get it right. In contrast to the grumblers around them, they say, But God, let's remember who God is. There is some difficulty in understanding the sequence of verse 16. It's introduced with the word then, so it might mean that we have a break here from the prophecy, which kind of gives way to historical narrative, like Malachi is describing people who have heard the content of what was said, and then they turned historically. And sometimes the prophets do exactly this. Recall that we saw something like this happen earlier in Zechariah 1. The outstanding commentator Andrew Hill takes Malachi 3.16 this way in his Anchor Bible Commentary. Other scholars see it just as a logical conjunction. The Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament describes this as an unemphasized use. And the Hebrew word can function like this. If you're interested in hunting these things down, Joshua 22.31 I think is a great example. Something like now or then or on the other hand. So it's not entirely clear, but this is how I would prefer to take it since it's the simpler reading, and I doubt the word that is translated then can bear the weight of saying, and now for a historical aside. So far, we've seen that the grumblers have their words, and the fearers have their words. And in the rest of the text, we find that God has his own words. It's like he's watching this group of people who are in the midst of hardship and adversity and yet encourage themselves by remembering who God is and it's, it's like he says in his heavenly court, hey, everyone, see that? That's worth noticing. Somebody write that down. That's the right answer. There have been a variety of ways of understanding this book of remembrance. One of the more creative suggestions is that this is a reference to the book of Malachi itself. It seems more likely, to me anyway, that Malachi is carrying on a tradition of imagery of a heavenly court which keeps records of earthly activities. Moses had talked about the book of life. A similar idea occurs in Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. This is the primary background for the image. In a secondary way, Malachi may also have in his mind the royal practice, seen, for example, with the Persians of having annals of important events and records of important names. King Ahasuerus, for example, has such a record read to him one night when he can't sleep, and there he discovers that Mordecai has done something worthy of remembrance but hasn't been rewarded. If you're not familiar with that delightful story, do yourself a favor and read or reread the book of Esther to see what happens. In that story, the book of the king plays a fundamental role in the plotline. So I think that background seems likely, but Malachi is especially and foremost a prophet 
calling people to recall the earlier prophets. And so I think a scriptural background is more likely. In any case, it seems likely that we have imagery, figurative books, instead of literal books in heaven. If you take the repeated references to God's heavenly book literally from Moses and in Isaiah and so on, you start running into complications as things push against one another. Nor should we think that God would ever forget who makes up his people, his treasured possession, and so needs to give himself a reminder. Instead, this is a metaphor for the certainty of God's vindication of the righteous who thought on his name. These righteous are described as God's treasured possession in verse 17. This alludes to the famous section of the Pentateuch, the preamble to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19.5, which reads, Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. I like how that passage acknowledges that God owns everything, and yet there's this special sense in which Israel is God's unique possession. The way Malachi 3 fleshes out this idea is like this, I will have compassion on them. That's what it means to be God's possession. In Exodus 19, all Israel is described as God's possession, or at least potentially so. In Malachi 3, we have a real Israel, so to speak, within Israel. And I can't help here but think of Paul's expression, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. We could, of course, keep reading to find out that this distinction between the righteous and the wicked is described in chapter 4 in terms of salvation and judgment. Malachi also describes these people who thought on God's name and are thus in his book as those who are like his sons who obey him. Now, this is really interesting because Malachi's prophecy starts off with, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And then, If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? And so on. And we have also seen Malachi argue from the fatherhood of God, not so much the universal fatherhood of God over all people, but the fatherhood of God over the nation. But the people that he's talking about here, his special treasure, are are a unique subset. These are the ones upon whom God will have compassion, like a father has compassion on a son who serves him. There are sons who grumble, who talk to one another about how they've done everything right and God has forgotten them. These words are just too much for God. But then there are sons who insist upon God's character, who fear him, who trust him, and so speak to one another about him. And this is what impresses God, so much so that God himself speaks. That is, he has their names written down in a book. You know, when things are unexpected around us, what's our response? How do we talk? Do we grumble about God's unfairness? You know, God's listening. Or do we take refuge in God's character? Do we build one another up, challenging one another to fear him, reminding one another about who God is? God's listening to these words too, and he responds with his own eternal records and salvation. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.